0: We used to believe that uh, the earth was the center of the universe around which every other planet revolved. And I suppose it's a natural human tendency to think that the world revolves around us. Uh, But this kind of thinking, though it's natural, has serious consequences for worship. If we make worship self-referential, and egocentric, we can't worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, when we make worship about our preferences, our personality, styles, and songs, uh, then it's not about God. It's not God that we're worshiping, but something else, someone else. In 1543, Nicholas Copernicus discovered that actually, it's not the earth, but the sun that is the center of the universe around which everything else revolves. And in the universe of Christian worship, the son of God is the center around which everything revolves. But whenever we make our preferences, our personality, style, the center, we miss Christian worship and it becomes something else. Psalm 95 Gets us back on track when it comes to worship. In Psalm 95, uh, we explore the way to worship, the why of worship, and the heart of worship. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about the way to worship. Uh, you get three times in verses one, two, and six of Psalm 95 a call to worship come, come, come uh, to worship. And there's this there's this call to sing and shout, uh, to shout aloud actually to the rock of our salvation. There was an ancient practice back in the day of uh, large crowds offering a a shout of homage at the entrance of a king into the city. Think about what happens when you're at Lucas Oil Stadium and Peyton Manning runs out uh, of the tunnel onto the field and there's a shout of homage, acclamation. Or or imagine being at a, uh, a concert and you've endured 90 minutes of mediocre opening acts. And then the headliner comes on stage and everybody goes crazy. That's what the psalmist is calling us to in worship. A shout, a loud shout in homage to the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you to note that uh, in verses 1 and 2 especially, it's, it's all about worship as celebration, worship as exuberant joy, singing and shouting. Uh, some of you are extroverted parties waiting to happen. You love this. This fits with your personality, celebration, expression. But in verse 6, the psalmist describes a way to worship that is less celebration and more solemn. Less expression and more reflection. Kneeling and bowing. And so, for those of you who are more introverted, solemn types, you get this. You enjoy this. So, if you see someone worshiping and you feel that they're being overly expressive, don't judge them. They're obeying Psalm 95. And if you see someone in worship being overly reflective and solemn, don't judge them. They're obeying Psalm 95. But here's what I want us to get. While worship uh, has variety and will often match our personality and preferences, worship oftentimes will not only match but stretch our personality and preferences. That's what's happening right now, actually. We are, whether we like it or not, ready or not, forced to worship now in ways that may not match our preferences and personality. I can tell you right now, looking into a camera, because of the situation with coronavirus and the call to social distancing, looking into a camera instead of looking into the eyes of people is not my preference. This does not match me. It stretches me to places I'd rather not go. But worship changes upon us whether we like it or not. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if worship matches our preferences right now. Why? Because worship is not about us. It's about God. We are not the audience for worship. God is. We give in worship to God whether we are in a sanctuary or at home Wherever we might find ourselves, we give our our attention to God, our affection to God, our action to God. In worship, we give attentive heads, affectionate hearts, and active hands, all that we are, to the God we worship. And nothing else really matters. Let's talk about why we worship. Why worship God? Well, because God is the great king. He is the maker, the creator of the universe. And he's also shepherd. I want you to notice the progression in this psalm. Uh, that God is he's great. He's the king. He is the creator. He is above and beyond us. He is uh, out of our league. He could crush us if he wants to. He is powerful. He is transcendent. But then the psalm ends with the image of God as shepherd. He's transcendent, he's powerful, but he's imminent, he's present. He's uh, outside of us and beyond us, but he is also with us and walks among us. And that's why we worship him. He's the God we worship. Uh, Notice in uh, the Old Testament, there's a temple progression, right? You start out in the outer court, you move to the inner court, and then into the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Worship, when it's done right, should take people on a journey in which they experience God as more and more and more accessible. So that, in the midst of the worship service of God's people, it's almost as if uh, God is tearing a little hole in the temple veil so that we can peek in and see, get a glimpse of his presence and power, his will and his way uh, in a way that's transformational, in a way that changes us. So it's not about the style, it's about the substance of our worship. Worship is offering ourselves to the God who offers himself to us. Worship is not driven by our personality and preferences, it's driven by the power and the presence of God. And when God is in the house, we will sing and shout. We will kneel and bow, not because the drums are rocking, not because the preacher is eloquent, uh, not because they're singing the same songs that they sang back when we got saved, but because the King is here. We won't sit in worship with our arms passively crossed in resistance because we don't like the worship style or the worship song or the worship leader. The king is here. Nothing else matters. The God who forgave our sins and heals our diseases, the God who knit us together in our mama's womb, the God who squeezed hope into the whole of our hearts, when we were in the despair of divorce or grip of addiction or so broke we couldn't pay attention or so depressed we couldn't get out of bed or so lonely we didn't want to live, that king is here. And it doesn't matter if the person next to us is an obnoxious hand raiser or the person behind us is, is, has horrific breath or if the communion mode is not our preferred way of doing it or if the temperature in our house or sanctuary is a little bit off or if the shine coming from my square head is offending you. It doesn't matter. If the king is here, nothing else matters. And that's why we worship. Let's talk about the heart of worship. There's this allusion back to something that happened in Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. Uh, The Israelites were just freed from slavery in Egypt, and uh, they saw miraculous signs from God. And... The, you know, the plagues and then the parting of the sea and then God is providing food for them in the wilderness. And then now in chapter 17 of Exodus, verses 1 to 7, water from a rock. The Exodus generation, probably more than any generation, had seen the power and the presence of God in the most profound way. And yet, uh, all they could do was complain about the menu options. All they could do was complain about what God didn't do because he showed up in a way they weren't familiar with. It was unpredictable. Uh, They would rather have the predictability and familiarity of being slaves in Egypt than being free with the unpredictable God in the wilderness. And so in Exodus 17, after water is released from a rock to quench their thirst in the wilderness, They asked the question, is is God here or not? They doubt the presence of God. And so they, uh, Meribah means quarrel. They quarreled with each other. Massa means they tested, tested God. Circumstances blinded them to the presence and power of God, who was right there in their midst doing remarkable miracles, but they couldn't see it because it didn't show up in a way they were expecting. And because they didn't see the presence and the power of God, they failed to worship. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of it. Their hearts had a problem. They had a heart problem. They had actually two heart problems. One is, uh, in verse 8, their hearts were hard, The second problem, verse 10, is their hearts went astray. Let's talk about hardness of heart. Uh, The Hebrew word here for hard means severe, stubborn, uh, stiff-necked, obstinate, difficult. If there's anything in life together in Christian community that brings out hardness of heart the most, it's worship and arguments about worship preferences to be more specific. Some of the most beautiful things I've seen, I've seen in the context of worship. I remember one time my friend Jeremy was uh, holding the communion elements, the bread and the cup in his hands as people were coming forward. And he was so overwhelmed with the weight of grace that he actually, uh, his knees buckled. He bowed under the weight of those elements. Somebody had to come and relieve him uh, while he was serving communion. Beautiful. But some of the ugliest things I've seen, I've seen in the context of Christian worship. Hardness of heart. When I was uh, newly arrived as a pastor at another church, uh, there was this one old guy, 75 years old or so, sitting in the back, always with his arms crossed, never worshiping, at least as far as I could tell. Angry. Oftentimes he would leave the sanctuary while I was preaching or while there was a song playing. And I couldn't quite figure him out. It seemed to me that he was lost, wandering in the wilderness when worship was his way home. Well, I found out uh, after I inquired that uh, 10 years before I got at the church, before I arrived, uh, the worship style had changed overnight. It went from organ-led worship to electric guitar worship almost overnight, And that happened 10 years ago. And the church was uh, aging and trying to be more hospitable to younger families and young adults. So their intention was right, but they made the change in a wrong way. And this older gentleman was still upset 10 years later and found himself stuck in a wilderness, wandering, angry, not worshiping, thirsty for God, but not having his thirst quenched. All he had to do was worship to find his way home. He was wandering. Now, it's not just senior adults who can be stubborn and hard of heart about worship. It can actually be 20-something young whippersnappers, too, who would lead us to believe that worship is only worship if the song was released yesterday and it's loud and it's cool and it's clever. So all of us can be guilty of hardness of heart when it comes to worship preferences. But then there's this other heart problem. A heart going astray. The word for astray is uh, the Hebrew word for stagger. Almost like you're drunk, like you're intoxicated. It's like being blown around by every whim, every trend in culture. And this happened to the Hebrews. So right away, as soon as they're freed from slavery in Egypt... They're in the wilderness, and they do what other nations had been doing. They worship a golden calf. Crazy. Their hearts were led astray. A little bit later in their history, uh, because other nations were worshiping the god Molech by offering their children as a sacrifice and fire, the people of God did the same thing. I remember when I was a pastor of college students in another town, a lot of uh, the students I was shepherding were going up to Toronto, to the Toronto uh, Vineyard Church for the Toronto Blessing, they called it. And they would come back from that worship experience and go to the dentist and ask the dentist if he could see uh, the gold fillings in their teeth. They believed that if they had faith, their fillings would turn to gold. Or they would start barking like dogs or... They would be slain with laughter. Clearly, they made worship about signs and wonders and not about the power and the presence of God. Their hearts went astray. So how do we keep that from happening to any of us? How do we worship? Because all of us want rest. And the reality is, um, we were made to worship. And if we worship something other than God, if we worship something or someone other than God, that thing will enslave us and keep us stuck, wandering in a wilderness looking for rest. We'll find something to worship. I think you know by now, Lakeview Wesleyan Church, that I love you. So recognize that what I'm about to say, I say in love. I've been here about eight or nine months. I recognize that every church I've ever been a part of has a sacred cow or two, a golden calf. Something that is important that is made ultimately significant. A tail that wags the dog. And if I could be honest with you, out of love, I'd say Lakeview Wesleyan Church, one of the sacred cows with which we wrestle is worship style and preferences. And all of us have them. And if we can't get past them, we will want to go back to the familiar, predictable way of Egypt instead of pressing forward to the future in the promised land of Canaan. There's generational preferences we all have, right? So, Uh, the builders want a worship leader to wear a suit and a tie and the boomers want a worship leader to wear khakis and a collared shirt and the Gen Xers like me want the worship leader or the pastor to wear jeans and a plaid shirt and millennials want skinny jeans and tattoos. We all have our preferences. But our preferences can become too important and in fact, true worship is evidenced by our Willingness to express love to God in ways that do not align with our particular preferences. I remember being stuck in a worship experience that I did not want to be in. Uh, Some of the seniors of my church wanted to get this Southern Gospel couple in for a worship evening. It was a Sunday evening service. I still remember it. And it was... uh, A couple in their 50s, she had big hair and lots of makeup and he was really cheesy and they used cassette, canned music and the the service went on and on and on. Southern gospel, which is not, to be honest, my favorite style of worship. And I remember in my heart being obstinate, resistant. Sitting there probably with my arms crossed, uh, resisting worship. And then I started to mock it in my head, that style. And then God said to me, the way that you feel right now about this style of worship is the way a lot of your seniors feel about your preferred style of worship. And nothing else matters if the king is here. You worship. True worship is evidenced by our willingness to express love to God in ways that don't align with our preferences. True worship looks like this. Lorraine, about 80 years old, came to me one day. I was her pastor, and she said, "Uh, Pastor Lenny, I really don't like the worship style of our church. The drums are way too loud. I don't know any of the songs, and I really prefer my pastor to wear a suit and a tie. But she said, my kids and grandkids love Coming to this church. They are connecting with God through worship, and I believe that pleases the heart of God. So keep doing what you're doing because worship is not about me. She got it. I want to be more like Lorraine. Because at the end of the day, the barometer for whether or not worship was uh, good on Uh, Sunday is how we live in mission on Monday. So whenever there is vibrant uh, worship, there will be vital mission. I don't know of a congregation that has vital mission that is not experiencing vibrant worship or has vibrant worship that is not experiencing vital mission on Monday. That's the barometer that counts. So the better we worship together on Sunday, the better our mission will be. To the community on Monday. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 95, is rather rocky. There is, in verse 1, talk about the rock of salvation. And then there's this allusion to a story in Exodus about water coming from a rock. In the New Testament, the only time I can recall that Jesus talked about worship was in John chapter 4 when he gets into a debate with a Samaritan woman about where and when and how to worship. And you might recall that Jesus cut to the chase and talked about living water. I think what the Word of God is trying to reveal to us is that when we find ourselves in the wilderness... The way out, the way home, is to worship. Worship the rock and we will have rest. What I'm saying is that the the great thirst quencher is not Gatorade, but worship. I think about the story of Job. Uh, Everything was taken from Job. He experienced all kinds of tragedy. He was in the wilderness. And Job 1.20 says, He fell to the ground and worshiped. Right now, our world is in a wilderness, looking to the church to stand tall. And we get a chance to show the world how to respond to the wilderness. How do we do it? We worship the rock and we will find rest. Let's pray. Lord, we will gather together, even if dispersed, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Forgive us for making worship about our preferences, our personality, our style, when it's really about your power and your presence. We will sing, and we will shout, we will kneel, and we will bow, because Jesus the King is here. Quench our thirst in the wilderness we find ourselves in. In the name of Christ the rock, we pray. Amen.